Let's stand together and open in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 24. If you need a Bible, be sure to lift up your hand and our ushers will get one to you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're studying all the way through the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in Luke 6, verse 24. And I have entitled this message this morning, Four Woes. Let's read as Luke writes, and he's writing the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking here, and he says this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We are gathered here this morning to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your promise of everlasting life. And I pray, Lord, that we as a church would always stand true and strong according to your doctrine, that we would search out what the word has for us, Lord. And Lord, may we see as we preach and as we teach, as we deliver your word, may we see sinners Come to you, Lord, forgiven of their sins to become saints as part of the body of Christ. We celebrate in that fact, Lord. We celebrate that we are the church and we have this unique call that no one else in the world has. And Father, I pray that you bless us. And Lord, I pray that your Father's heart is blessed by seeing your children come together and worship you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask your blessing specifically upon today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this section of the Gospel of Luke is called the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude means blessedness and exaltation and divine joy. These are some of the qualities in life that the Lord rewards and exalts and blesses. And we see that they are the very opposite of what the world rewards and exalts and blesses. Now, as we spoke about last week, Normally, we think of the Beatitudes there in Matthew chapter 5, in that section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. But we also see it here as well. Now, Luke's list is shorter of the Beatitudes, and he makes an addition that Matthew does not include. And that's why many believe that this is a unique teaching of Jesus, not just a shorter summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke includes a series of woes that Jesus gives here that follow the Beatitudes. In other words, Jesus has has given the blessings and now the cursings. He's given us the qualities that the Lord blesses and now the qualities of life that the Lord curses. So Jesus pronounces these four woes on these four different characteristics. And they are in direct contradiction to all that the world holds dear. And we know that. We read through this, we'll see it. Now a woe is kind of a curse. It's a pronouncement of judgment on someone or something. It's an idea here of judgment and warning all wrapped together in one. Now, the fact that the object of the woe or the objects of the woe can hear the woe and understand the woe means that God is giving them an opportunity to repent, to change course and to go in a different direction. So really, when Jesus pronounces these woes upon a person or upon people, it is a great Act of mercy, isn't it? It's his mercy and kindness calling someone to repentance before judgment comes. 
Just recently, a bridge collapsed on Interstate 5 there on, in Mount Vernon, Washington. That little city is about halfway between Seattle and the Canadian border. Uh, trucks, actually two trucks were going along Interstate 5, and as they were traveling, one of the trucks began to scoot over to make room for the other truck, and this truck was carrying a very wide load, and as it moved over, just going under that bridge, it began to clip several of the supports of the bridge as it went under. And then the bridge under stress began to buckle, and then it collapsed. The truck made it through, but the bridge collapsed right behind it and then fell into the Skagit River. Now, the truck made it through, but the cars following the truck did not. There were three or four cars right behind that truck that actually went off the bridge into the Skagit River about 30 to 35 feet down below. By the grace of God, nobody was killed. There were no fatalities. They were hurt very seriously, as you can imagine, but no one was killed, thankfully. Now, obviously, they closed Interstate 5 after that, and they set up a detour for the traffic so that people could take a safe route around the collapsed bridge and to go on a route that had all of its bridges intact. And there were signs along Interstate 5 that said, detour ahead. Danger, don't continue any further. Take this detour and go around. Now, what if someone, probably some young man in a truck, said, I don't need no stinking detour. And he put his foot down to the gas and he just blew through all those signs. Knocked over the cones and the signs and the warnings everywhere and went straight ahead. He's already received the warning, don't continue. Take the detour. He continued past the warning and he's proceeding now in direct opposition to the authority that has warned him. Now, we don't speak this way today, generally, because we don't use the word woe, but it would be completely appropriate to have your next sign say, woe to you. You've blown through all of the previous warnings. Now we're giving you a woe. Woe to you. If you continue down this path, you will crash and you will die. That's what a woe is. It's the culmination of a warning and a curse. The idea is you have transgressed. You have gone against previous warnings. And if you continue down this path, you will suffer the full consequences of your choices. Don't continue. The fool disregards the woe. The wise man heeds the woe when he stops and he examines himself. Should I continue? Is this sign right? Is this warning correct? Do I need to turn my life around? So Jesus pronounces these woes. And we see four woes here in the general sense, but Jesus also pronounced other woes in his ministry. He also gave woes very specifically. He admonished individuals who would sin against a child of God and bring sin into a child of God's life. He says this in Matthew eighteen seven. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Jesus said there is going to be sin brought into this world. It's a sinful world. Sin will damage even the little ones, the children of God. But he says woe to that man who brings sin into the life of the child of God. Jesus gave a woe. He admonished individual cities. And he said in Matthew eleven twenty one, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. You see, Jesus performed much of his ministry in the northern portion of Israel, and that's where Chorazin and Bethsaida were, two villages. 
They saw Jesus. They saw the Messiah. They heard him. They touched him. They watched his miracles and all the people being healed. But they did not repent and turn from their sin and follow Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected him, essentially. There may have been some people who repented, but the cities did not. And Jesus says, woe to you. The Son of God, if the Messiah had done his ministry in the north among the Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon who do not have the scriptures, the Phoenicians would have repented. But you did not. Woe to you. Then Jesus admonished the religious leaders in Matthew 23, 13. He said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He said, woe to you. You set up barriers and obstacles, and you make it very difficult for someone to come to God, and you yourselves do not enter into the kingdom of God. Woe to you. How dare you keep people from God? Jesus was very clear. There are consequences coming for a sinful and rebellious and disobedient life. And a woe is saying, cease and desist. Don't go any further. There's a bridge out ahead. You are headed for a crash. And it's going to be very devastating. That's what a woe is. Now this this aspect of Jesus' ministry, that he he would give a woe, that he would give a condemnation and a warning wrapped into one, catches a lot of people off guard. People don't expect that from Jesus, especially in today's culture. I thought Jesus was always positive and encouraging. I thought Jesus always made me feel good. I'm surprised that Jesus would say this kind of thing. You see, in today's culture, especially in the United States of America, we have created our own Jesus, haven't we? People create their own Jesus who looks like them and is their own personal little cheerleader and affirms everything that they do. Jesus becomes their mini-me, that little puppet that comes alongside them and lavishes them with compliments and endorses all of their behavior, and then makes excuses for them when they fail, why it's not really their fault, or their sin wasn't really that big of a deal after all. How many of us have been speaking to someone about the things of the Lord? You're talking about God, you're talking about the Bible, and the subject of judgment or hell comes up. And quite often someone will hear that and they'll say, I don't believe in that kind of God. No, no, you don't understand. I believe in a God that is loving and tolerant and accepting of all. I don't believe in a God that would have a hell. That's not my kind of God. So what you're saying is, is that you have manufactured your own God apart from Scripture, a God that overrides your conscience and condones all of your behavior. That's the kind of God you've created. See, you believe in a God that does not judge sin because you do not want God to judge your sin, so you have refashioned God into your own image. And we call that idolatry. And it's been going on since the pages of the Old Testament. The world always did that. They looked out there and said, I don't want to worship the God of heaven. I don't want to worship the God of the Bible. I don't like that God. So I'll make my own God. So I'll take clay or metal or wood and I'll fashion it it into a little God that I like. And I'll bow down to that. That's idolatry. And it is still going on today as people worship their own God. But you see, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not Jesus, the Son of God. That's not even the prophets of the Bible or the teachers and the preachers of the Bible. If they are teaching and preaching correctly, the Bible warns against sin. 
And that's exactly what we see here from Jesus. He is saying, woe to you. He's giving this very strict warning against sin and the consequences of sin. He's saying, don't continue down that path. It leads to destruction. I am warning you. It's a a heart of love and a heart of mercy that gives this warning. It's a good reminder to us as Christians. Don't let this world define who Jesus is to you. Don't let this contemporary culture try and redefine Jesus. We as Christians always go to the word of God. And we allow the Bible to define Jesus and who he is. And the Bible and Jesus preaches against sin. You see, Jesus is not this little teddy bear, this little huggable Jesus that you've got that pacifies your feelings and allows you to disobey the word of God. No, Jesus does love us, to be sure. Jesus loves us so much, the Bible says, that he went to the cross to die in our place volitionally, taking all of our sin upon himself and to pay a payment that we ourselves could never pay so that we might have everlasting life. That's how much Jesus loves us. And yes, Jesus is our comforter. And yes, Jesus is a caring and a tender shepherd. Those are all very true things. But we can never forget that Jesus is also Lord and Savior. And he makes demands on us, demands of righteousness, and we must live for him. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus rewards faithfulness, and he chastises disobedience. And that's why he pronounces these woes for the whole world to hear. Now, the first woe that Jesus gives here is on the rich. He says, woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation." Now, when you initially read that, maybe you're going through the Bible the first time and you stumble on that verse and you look at that and you think, whoa, is is Jesus condemning anyone and everyone that has money or resources? You've got a bank account, a savings account, a retirement account. Are you condemned? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus teaching communism here? Is this where Karl Marx got his philosophy? And I guarantee you, Karl Marx did not get his philosophy out of the New Testament. Jesus is not teaching communism, no. Where we all have to give up everything and, and live in common poverty with each other. No. Here as Christians, it's always important that we remember to go back to the definitions of Scripture. The definition of our salvation. The definition of righteousness. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that we are pleasing to the Lord. We are acceptable to the Lord. We are made righteous in the eyes of the Lord by grace through faith. Okay? We can never let that definition go. That definition modifies everything else. We are saved. We are made righteous by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not teaching that money in abundance or money in lack gets you in or keeps you out of heaven. That's not what he's saying. We cannot earn our favor with God. Jesus earned it all for us. We are righteous by grace through faith. What is Jesus speaking about then? Jesus is speaking here about those who have an abundance and are satisfied with the systemic wealth of this fallen, sinful world. He's talking about those who are rich in their their pride, the spiritually proud, the spiritually elevated in this world. Now, this does have a very close correlation with material riches, to be sure. If you have any doubt, just look at the Forbes list of the 500 richest Americans in this country. And you'll see that on that list, there are very few, if any, open evangelical Christians. That can be kind of strange to us as Christians. Hey, 
How come the richest people in the nation are not Christians? Where are they? Why aren't they on that list? Well, it's because riches are so often a conduit of pride. Riches in this world so often cause people to look at themselves and see themselves as self-sufficient and better than everyone else. And I don't need God, and I don't need his forgiveness, and I don't need to repent, and I don't need to change. That's the danger of riches. You see, wealth is a real trap in that regard, and it can be a huge stumbling block. It's even a stumbling block for Christians. Wealth can become a real problem in the body of Christ. It shouldn't be, but it can be. Often I wonder even why the Lord blesses us sometimes, his children in a material sense, knowing that so often that it's a quick avenue to compromise and to lukewarm service of the Lord. It shouldn't be that way, but it often is. How many Christians start off strong, but then the Lord begins to bless them and their family and their family business, and they begin to accumulate wealth and resources in this life. And then after a while, they begin to disappear and you don't see them anymore. Their church attendance drops off. Their service to the Lord becomes non-existent. And they simply become spectators sitting on the sideline, comfortable from watching afar. Kind of one foot in and one foot out. And they're very easy in that situation. They feel very good about it because they have money. I'm fine where I am. Has this sort of deadening effect to it. And it shouldn't be that way. As Christians, when the Lord blesses us, those are God's resources. He's entrusted them to you and to me. He's blessed us. And we need to use that place of blessing to honor and to serve the Lord. And to even draw closer to the Lord. And to use those resources to glorify the Lord. Now it takes incredible Christian character to do that. It really does. It takes incredible Christian character to stay faithful and actually growing in your service to the Lord when God blesses you in a material sense. Because generally speaking... And I'm not that old yet, but from what I've seen in my life, the wealthier a Christian gets, more often, the less committed they get. They walk away from the Lord, or they live on that fringe, on that edge. And it's unacceptable. And Jesus says, woe to you. It should not be that way, especially in the church. Don't fall for that trap, Christian. I'm not speaking to some of you who are young and trying to Make ends meet. I know some of you young marrieds out there, I've been there. You can't rub two nickels together. You're using every dollar to raise that family. Obviously, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to that Christian that is in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s and beyond. And they started to accumulate things. God has blessed their life. And the resources are piling up. You need to ask yourself. We all need to ask ourselves. As time has gone on, and I've begun to accumulate more and more wealth... Am I now more committed to Christ or less committed to Christ? When I look back over the last 20 or 30 years, where am I today? Am I a more devoted follower of Christ and giving more of myself to him? Or have I drifted over the last 20 or 30 years? Ask yourself, if everyone in this church served like I served, what would the church look like? Would half the people show up half the time and nothing ever get done around here? Because I don't do anything. I just sit on the sideline and I watch. What would the church look like if everyone served like you? The best way to measure your commitment, your growing commitment to the Lord, is by your time and by your money. 
Are you serving the Lord and are you giving to the Lord? And are, are these things increasing as time goes on, as you're drawing closer to the Lord? And are you doing it sacrificially? Is there a cost to it? Sadly, when you look at the statistics, the richer somebody gets in the body of Christ, the less they give as a percentage of their wealth to the, to the Lord, to the church. Shouldn't be that way. One of the tremendous indicators of how we value the kingdom of God, how we value the church, how we value of what that Jesus sacrificed and what he did for us and what it means to us is measured by our time and by our money. What we do with the resources that God has given us. So wealth can be a problem in the church, but it is almost uniformly devastating to the world. A while ago, I was involved in a door-to-door evangelism ministry here in Turlock. And uh, it was a few years ago, and it was with a, another church a while back, and we'd go out and we'd hit all the neighborhoods, and we would talk to people about the Lord, just going door-to-door. If you've never done it before, try it sometimes. It's a little nerve-wracking. Oh, no, i got to go knock on a door and talk about these things. So we would hit all the neighborhoods. We would hit the, uh, the poor neighborhoods, the, just the middle-class neighborhoods, and then the, the wealthier neighborhoods here in Turlock. And it was interesting. And now I'm speaking generally. It's a general observation. But when you went to the poor neighborhoods, those without money, and you knocked on the door, the people were very friendly and very eager to give you an audience. They were just happy that somebody was showing up and talking to them. Now, they didn't always agree with everything that you said. I'm not saying that they all received Christ and obeyed the gospel, but they would at least listen to you. They would give you an audience. And then we would go to the wealthier neighborhoods and we would knock on their doors. And it became very apparent, very quickly, the general pervasive attitude in those neighborhoods. What are you doing here? I don't need what you have to say. Your silly little message, as you're standing on my porch on this frozen January night, shivering, I don't need your little gospel. I'm rich. I've got a beautiful home. I've got two or three cars in my garage. You should see my retirement plan. If anything, you guys need what I have. I don't need what you have. They were blinded by their wealth. Their money was blinding them. And that's what Jesus is condemning here. Wealth that convinces people that they are fine where they are, that the God of this world or the spiritual forces of this world or nature itself has somehow endorsed me and lifted me up because I am wealthy. Jesus is condemning that here. That smug attitude of the rich who says that, obviously, I am blessed because I have a large bank account. That's why Jesus condemns the rich. Because they're self-serving and self-righteous and self-congratulatory. Not because of the money itself. It's because they believe that they have no need for God. And so Jesus says to them, you have received your consolation." In other words, you have your prize already here, so make sure that you enjoy it, is what Jesus is saying. To those who have rejected the Lord and want nothing to do with him, Jesus said, you have your consolation. Go to the mountains, enjoy your cabin, fly to the islands, go to your home in Tuscany, in Europe, whatever it is, enjoy it now, because this is the very best you will ever have it for all of eternity. But for the child of God, it's just the opposite. Whether you're rich or or middle class or poor in the child, as a child of God, in the body of Christ. Your worst day is literally the very worst you're ever going to have it. Do you recognize that? Literally, it's only going to get better here for all of eternity. 
Those outside of Christ will never have it better than right now. Those in Christ will not only never have it worse, it will only get better and better for everlasting life. And then Jesus says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Now once again, don't think that Jesus is teaching here that if you have a full belly, you don't get to go to heaven. If you have an empty belly, into heaven you go. That would be a contradiction to the gospel. We are saved, we are made righteous by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we hold on to that definition. But Jesus here is speaking of the appetites of those who are satisfied and filled by this world. Those who love the values and the priorities of this world. Those who feast on the things of this world and are satiated. That's what he's talking about here. These are the people that don't have an appetite for the kingdom of God. In fact, the idea of repentance and forgiveness and that Jesus needs to be their Lord and Savior is repulsive to them. It is bad food and it makes them sick to their stomach. We know the type. When you speak to them about the things of God, they look at you with disgust. They revile you. They want nothing to do with you. They want to shut your mouth. This type works overtime to close Christians' mouths and to keep them silent. They don't want the gospel or public prayer in any sort of forum. They love the things of the world, and they want to silence the body of Christ. We know them. You see, when we eat physically, we take the food, we chew the food, we swallow the food, the food goes into our stomach, and when we have sufficient quantity in our stomach, there's a chemical signal that is sent to the brain that says, you are full, you're no longer hungry. And so we stop desiring food. That's good. That's a very good and important signal for us. Tell us to no longer eat. But when it happens in the world, the worldly person partakes of the food of this world. And when their spiritual belly is full, they are satisfied, but not by the things of the Lord, by the things of this world. And so their signal is, I am no longer hungry for anything else. And I don't want anything to do with the kingdom of God. That's the condemnation of Jesus here, that they love the things of this world, that they're full of the things of this world, and they will never look for anything else. They don't want God. They don't need God. They're not seeking God. They should be sickened by the appetites of this world, but they love it. They love the food of this world. Their sinful appetites want more and more sin, and like an addict, they can't get enough, and they continue down that path pursuing wickedness and God's judgment and Jesus says woe to you and then he says for you shall hunger those of you who are full now you shall hunger you shall be in want now what does Jesus mean by that he means that there is a time coming when these people who are full now with the things of this world will see and understand the blessing of God the kingdom of God and all the goodness of God, and they will want that. They will be hungry for that, but they won't be able to have it. We see that in Luke chapter 16. And someday we will get there to Luke chapter 16. But Luke chapter 16 is a very sobering chapter. And Jesus tells us in that chapter about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, he says, was extremely rich. In fact, he wore purple. In that day, purple dye was extremely expensive. For someone to be able to afford purple and to put it in their linen garments, it was an advertisement that I am a rich man or I am a rich woman. I can wear something 
that no one else can afford. So this man was rich. He wore linen and purple and he was well fed and he was self-righteous. There was also a man named Lazarus. Now, this is not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. This is another Lazarus. And he was a poor man. He was so poor that he was a beggar. He could not make a living for himself. All he did was hope that someone would give him a little bit of money or a little bit of food or something to sustain him for that day. The Bible tells us that the dogs licked his sores. Not only was he poor, but he was not in good health. And apparently he was not even mobile enough to get up and find shelter. So the dogs would come along and lick his oozing sores. And they laid this man at the gate of the rich man, Lazarus. And it says that he longed for the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. He didn't even want a full meal. He just wanted some crumbs that would come off the table. Can you sweep them together and give them to me? Please don't throw those crumbs away. That would be my sustenance for a day. Well, eventually, Lazarus died. And then the rich man died as well. That's why, of course, death is sometimes called the great equalizer, because we all die. Rich and poor alike die. When Lazarus died, Jesus said the angels carried him away to Abraham's bosom, a word for paradise. And there he was. When the rich man died, he was buried, and he then was found himself in Hades in torment by the flame there. And then Jesus tells us that In that place, he looked out and he saw Lazarus. He recognized Lazarus. He was in his full cognition. He was fully aware, fully understanding what he was seeing. He saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he cried out to Abraham and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus over to me that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. You see, there it is. The rich man was full. He was satisfied in his life. He probably stepped over Lazarus many times in his luxurious robes as he was on his way to different prestigious parties. He would have given anything now at this point to trade places with Lazarus when he probably didn't even notice Lazarus. Lazarus was hungry in life, and now he was satisfied. The rich man was satisfied in life, but now... He was hungry. You see, Abraham at that point told the rich man that no, no son, I can't send Lazarus to you. Remember that in your life you had the good things and Lazarus had the evil things, but now your situation is reversed. And also there's a great chasm between us so that no one can go from here to there or there to here. In other words, your condition now is fixed for all of eternity. So he was full. But then he was hungry. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And then Jesus gives a woe to those who laugh now. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep. Now, the church has historically taken this to mean that we need to be very somber people as Christians. I mean, if you laugh, you're going to weep. So no laughing as a Christian. Much of church history, especially European church history, has been marked by this very somber disposition. You've seen the, the pictures of Christians not even that long ago. You know, they're very, nobody smiles. You're very, very serious. You've got to be very somber. Now, obviously, there is a place for us as Christians to be reverent before the Lord. That's a, that's a good thing. There's a place for us as Christians to weep for the sins and to be broken over the wickedness in this world. That's a good thing. 
But there is also a place for joy and rejoicing in the life of a Christian. As Paul says, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. So there is that place of joy just to cover us and for us to be known for our joy in the Lord. So our lives are marked by both. Yes, we're reverent before the Lord. Yes, we're broken for the sin of this world. But we're also known for being joyous because of our salvation. So what was Jesus saying then? For those who laugh now, you shall weep. Jesus was saying that those who are amused and entertained and charmed by the circus of the sin of this world, you will be judged. There's a place for the Christian to laugh. And that's good. Now, we don't laugh here at Calvary Chapel Turlock. That's my problem. I'm not funny. See, I even tried and it didn't work. I try, but I'm just not funny. So we don't do a lot of laughing here. But laughing is good. There is a place for it. I do try. I really try. But think about most of the humor in the world. Most of the humor in the world is, is raunchy. It is cheap. It is coarse. It gets immoral. It gets gross. And people love to laugh at it. And our comedians in this society are very well paid and honored And Hollywood makes blockbuster comedies. And they make millions and hundreds of millions of dollars. But here we have it. A promise from Jesus. A warning from Jesus. That kind of laughter and hilarity at sin in this world will lead to weeping. What's he talking about? Weeping. That's one of the descriptions of hell, isn't it? A place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is describing hell. People that are entertained by the sin of this world and they love it and they lavish themselves in it will wind up in hell where there will be eternal weeping. That's what Jesus is warning about. That's sobering to us, isn't it? It's a wake-up call for us that sort of jolts us into reality that we need to live uncompromisingly and unreservedly for Christ to be the light of this world because the consequences of rejecting Christ are real and they are eternal and there is no recovery from it. So as Christians, we can laugh. We just have to be careful what we laugh at. We cannot enjoy the sin of this world. We cannot find amusement and entertainment in the sin of this world. And then Jesus says, Something interesting there in verse 26. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. You know, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they loved the praise and the adulation of people. They wanted to be at the forefront. They wanted to be at that place of attention. They wanted all people to recognize them and elevate them. They loved to be popular in that sense. That's one of the reasons that they hated Jesus, isn't it? They hated this this uneducated carpenter from Nazareth. This Galilean was collecting all these crowds around him as he was teaching the word of God. They wanted that place and position for themselves, and they were envious of Jesus. They wanted that popularity. That's the life of a politician as well. So often politicians will seek and do whatever is necessary so that all men will speak well of them, so that they can remain politically popular. Now, I'm not saying that a Christian can't be a politician. In fact, I wish we had more Christians in the political sphere. And if God is calling you to run for something at whatever level, great, wonderful. We need Christians there. But just be careful. Don't seek the approval of man. Seek the approval of God. That's what matters. 
one of the greatest temptations of this world. The power and fame that comes with popularity to be known and to be loved by the people of this world. And Jesus did not look at that quality favorably. In fact, he condemns it and he compares it to the false prophets. That's how the false prophets were. They always wanted to be thought well of and loved by the people. You see, we live in a fallen and sinful world, don't we? And it means that the primary appetites and desires and the drives of the people in this world are based on their lust, based on their flesh and their flesh desires. And the quickest way to be popular in this world is to cater to that, to cater to people's love of the flesh and love of lust, to appease and to applaud and to satiate their sin. That's what will make you popular. For instance, I've noticed that in this world, we love to be entertained. We love to be entertained. We would prefer to be entertained than to work our minds and to grow our minds and to grow intellectually. We want to sit back and be entertained. And therefore, Hollywood and all of the stars of Hollywood, they remain extremely popular in our culture and in our world. They even remain popular when they live like scoundrels. And this one leaves his wife and leaves his children and walks out and does the same thing again and again and spreads himself out all over and lives an immoral life. Nobody holds him accountable because this individual makes us feel good. He entertains us, and so he remains popular. People love to be lazy in their flesh. We want to get something for nothing. So politicians that come along and justify that and send money to people who do that, yeah, you go ahead and do nothing, and we'll take money from this group, and we'll send it to this group. You just sit back and collect your check and do nothing that you've never invested in or worked for. Those people are very, very, the politicians are very, very popular with the beneficiaries of that policy. So if people cater to sin in this world, they gain popularity. All men speak well of them. And that's why it's such a huge mistake for pastors to go in that direction and try to elicit a following based on their personality or their style or their popular reach. It's crazy. It's unbiblical. I think it's a huge temptation. And that's why so many nice guys, quote unquote, go into the ministry because they know they can get a following. They are popular with the people. And I want you to know that it's okay with me that I'm not popular. You probably knew that already. Yeah, you know, we know that about you. It's okay with me. My desire is that you respect me as a congregation and that you know that I will be the guy that will tell you the truth. Even when you don't want to hear it, even when it's not comfortable, you know that that guy will tell me what the Bible has to say. That's what I want. My heart is to see you in heaven. Not as a private first class that has no rewards or decorations on your uniform or whatever we wear in heaven. I want you to get there with tremendous reward. As Paul called it, that eternal weight of glory upon you. That's my heart and desire for this congregation. Don't seek popularity in this world. Seek Jesus. We don't live for the accolades of men. We live for the commendation of God. The crowds are fickle. They'll love you today and hate you tomorrow. But our heavenly reward lasts forever. And the Christian life is not a popular life. Some of you who are young, I hate to break that to you, but it's true. The Christian life is not a popular life. That's because we live and we carry and we preach and we teach a message that the world does not want to hear. We tell them that you are a sinner who needs to be saved by the grace of God. 
And most people in the world will reject that. In fact, the world has a long and bad history of persecuting and killing people that preach and teach that message. They don't want to hear it. You think for a moment that you're getting a little too popular, that people are speaking too well of you, just share the gospel. It'll take care of it immediately. You'll lose a lot of friends. They'll be chased away. Now, some of those people that you speak the gospel to will be saved. They'll say, yeah, that's true, and I want to bow my knee to Christ. But many people will say, I don't want to hear it because I don't want to change my behavior. I don't want to submit to the Lord. These are the Beatitudes and the woes in the book of Luke. These are the qualities that God blesses and the qualities that God curses. And we can see how fundamentally these values of the Lord are in contradiction to the things of this world and to our culture. The next time that you're watching a movie or watching a TV program or listening to worldly music, just listen to what they're pitching. Listen to what they are esteeming. Listen to what they are laughing at. And ask yourself, does it fit with Scripture? Does it fit with the Beatitudes? Does it fit with the woes? And you'll find that most of the time, no, it doesn't. That the kingdom of God is out of sync with the kingdom of this world. Why? Because we as Christians don't belong here. This is not ultimately our home. And the values of the kingdom of God do not fit here. That's why we are just passing through. Now, let me ask you this. Can we as Christians make a good paycheck and make money and have a savings account? Yes. Yes, we can. Of course we can. Can we as Christians have a nice meal and enjoy the food that God has made for us? Yes, of course we can. Because we, can we as Christians laugh and participate in humor in this world? Yes, of course we can. You have to be careful with all of these things, that it's all aligned with the values of the kingdom of God and not this world. But here's the difference. We as Christians cannot consume and become satisfied with the values and the priorities of this kingdom here in the world. The riches and the appetites and the entertainment of this world are foreign to us because it is all built on a system that is corrupted by sin. And not only is it corrupted by sin, this world celebrates sin and advances sin. It laughs in sin. It becomes a comf- becomes very comfortable and entertained by sin. And that is not us as Christians. It breaks our hearts because Jesus died for our sin. So as Christians, we live separate and sanctified lives. The Bible calls that a holy life. We live a life that is built upon the foundation of the gospel. We do not celebrate sin. We don't laugh at sin. We celebrate repentance. We celebrate forgiveness. We take our joy in the foundations of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. We are different people from this world. We are a peculiar people. And someday we will see the Lord face to face. And our faith will be made sight. And then it will all make sense. That's the kingdom that I belong to. I've heard it said. I don't know if it's true, because I haven't been to heaven yet. But they say that your first words as a Christian when you get to heaven will be, of course. Of course. It all makes sense now. This is the kingdom that I was created for. This is the kingdom that I've been living for. It'll all fall into place. At that point, the mysteries will be removed. And we will understand and experience the fullness of God's glory. And we will see our Savior face to face. That's why we don't live for this world. That's why we live for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your kingdom. The kingdom that you came to die for so that we might be part of. What a price, what a cost, so that we might be yours and made righteous in you. And Lord, we see these woes where you say, woe to the world. And Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would never take on the values of this world and become identified with this world, but that we would belong to you first and foremost. Thank you, Jesus, for making us yours. Thank you for paying that price. And Lord, I would pray your blessing upon our congregation. I pray, Lord, that you pour pour out your blessing, that the windows of heaven are opened upon us, Lord that we would use all of that blessing and all of that grace and all of that mercy to give back to you as glory. That people would look at our lives and look at our church and look at our families and look at our individual conduct and they would say, that person, those people, they serve the Lord. We thank you for so much that you have given us, Lord. We ask that we would walk strongly with you and as the days get darker and darker, we know the light shines brighter and brighter. Lord, I pray that you would shine through us. So many people need to hear this message, that their sins can be forgiven. They can live a different kind of life, and they can serve you. May that message go forth, Lord, and may we be the messengers of that gospel right here in Turlock and the surrounding communities. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. 